Welcome to episode 8 of the Inclusion Initiative, a Jedi AAEM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, the podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown speaks with fellow AAEM at-large board member, Dr. Robert Lamb. So the purpose of this podcast or this like kind of chat with you is really to get to know you. I had been doing stuff in Jedi, really highlighting the diversity of the Academy, more so around Heritage Months. And I got some feedback from a member that they were willing to participate, but he said something to me that really made me think that there are so many people that don't necessarily feel the need or the want to identify themselves in a silo. Oh yes, it is AAPI month or it is Black History Month or it's Women's Month or Pride Month, whatever that is, they don't necessarily feel the need to be recognized in that specific way. So that made me think more so about what are some other ways that we can highlight the beauty and the diversity of our academy. And so I was like, what better than just to talk to people and get to know them? So I decided to just do this podcast Different people, different ones that I've seen around the academy that are maybe in leadership or maybe sometimes they're not in leadership per se, but just to get to know them and their story and why they're in the academy and what makes them great. So that's how I came up with this. (laughs) And so you, of course, came up and and part of it is I just want to sit around and talk to people that I haven't gotten a chance to talk to in a specific way. I feel like we work alongside of each other, of course, during board meetings, you and I, or now the Leadership Academy. But sometimes we just don't get a chance to like, just get the basics of people like, who are you? Where are you from? Like, (laughs) how'd you grow up? Like, why are you a doctor? Like all of these things that we just we're in the same spaces where we just don't get a chance to get to the background. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Sometimes we are so focused on kind of the business at hand. I think we forget that we're also in the people business and we, I think, function best when we have a highly functioning team that knows each other. Right. So it's good to be known. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So that all being said, tell me about you. Dr. Robert Lamb. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Tell me everything from little baby Rob. (laughs) So I guess I'll preface that I am not very good about talking about myself. So this is already a kind of a stretch for me to talk about myself, but I can tell you some of the highlights as I see them. So uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was little, my mom was in a very serious accident. And so she had to go to a lot of physical therapy and doctor's appointments when I was growing up. And of course I had to tag along and it was watching the interactions between the physicians and physical therapists and that relationship that my mom developed with them that really instilled in me a respect for uh, the the profession of medicine, how it can really impact our our patients and how it can really make things better for patients in the long run. And so that kind of drove my desire to become a physician. Um, When I graduated high school, they offered an innovative curriculum at the University of Missouri, where it was a combined bachelor and doctorate program. So instead of doing it in eight years, you actually got your bachelor degree and your doctorate in six years. And that prompted a lot of comments about how we were 
Doogie Hauser docs, which was fine. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I'm fine with that too, because I felt like we had a we had really had a, a fantastic clinical education. I had great mentors. I had the same internist that mentored me from for four years. When I did a half day a week clinic with him for four years two months of internal medicine a year for four years. And so he was a great mentor for me growing up. And he really wanted me to be an internist, of course, but I ended up deciding to go into emergency medicine, mainly because I felt like that's what I believe that doctors uh, do. They, they see emergencies and they stabilize patients and they see all types of patients and they're not limited to certain specific types of patients. And they have that skill set that I wanted to acquire which when I talk to my med students, it's always about being the doctor on the plane. Do you have the skills to really help someone in an emergency situation with sometimes limited resources, sometimes with rich resources, but really it, being able to know this is what we do to help people that are having an emergency. So that's not the impetus for which I chose to go into emergency medicine. When were you first exposed to EM, do you think? Yeah, the, the medical school was integrated with the uh, emergency medicine residency program. So they had a lot of outreach. Um, and um, yeah, so we got exposed early. Um, one of my um, colleagues, uh, my fellow classmates, was very interested in emergency medicine. And he talked about how he's pretty sure that's what he wanted to do. And so he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to do the senior year emergency medicine elective early. Um, and I just followed his path and yeah, found that I really liked it. And he's now the chair of emergency medicine in, at the University Health in Kansas City. Yeah. Then after I finished my residency, I had spent six years, I ended up doing my residency the same place where I went to medical school and an undergraduate. So I'd spent about nine years in Kansas City. And so I was ready for a change. So right when I graduated, I decided to do something different. And I decided to do international locum tenums. <clears throat> so I did six months in Australia and six months in New Zealand. I remember talking to our former chair at the time and I said, hey, I was, I'm looking at these jobs. They don't look that appealing to me. I was thinking about going to New Zealand. He's like, you know what, Rob, you're never going to regret that. And he was absolutely right for in terms of a, a mixture of a chance to develop your skills and challenge yourself in some ways because the healthcare system is similar, but also different. They have a different approach to how they take care of patients, how they diagnose patients. They do a lot more observation, a lot less technology, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. So a lot of it's more clinical medicine, getting back to our roots and relying a lot less on advanced imaging, which I think is a positive thing overall. And then a lot of it's kind of a more realistic approach. Are we helping patients at the end of their life by hospitalizing them and putting them in the ICU? Or should we be strategizing? How can we really focus on what their goals of care are in a practical sense and making them as comfortable as possible and giving them a good death as opposed to some of the uncertainty that we face in our healthcare system about what decisions do we make at the end of life? What really represents, I think, a good and healthy life at the end of your years? And so they had a very realistic approach to to healthcare, and I, I still respect those lessons to this day. And is that the the kind of the modus operandi in New Zealand, or is it like that in Australia as well? I'd say both. It's a different healthcare system. They have a lot less resources in some ways. If you really have, they are much faster to say your condition is futile, and we're not going to go and put you in the ICU. The ICU is for patients that are actually going to be able to leave the ICU, and we're more likely to steer you towards a palliative care approach. If you have end-stage COPD, I remember I, <laughs> I remember I saw a patient that was clearly in respiratory distress. And I did what I did in residency, which is, okay, let's go. Let's uh, innovate the patient. 
Let's get him on drips. Let's do all these things. And I remember the intensivist coming over and saying, hey, Rob, I see you intubated this patient. And the thing is that patient has end-stage COPD. And at their current state, they really can't walk from here to there. And if we get them out of the ICU, they're still not going to be able to, probably not going to be able to walk any better than the, from here to there. In our country, in our system, this is a patient that's really not appropriate for the ICU. And I think that's a lasting lesson for me to remember that sometimes doing everything for a patient isn't necessarily doing the right thing for the patient. And we have to make some, some choices. Um, of course, re recognizing uh, patient and family preferences, but there's a room for discussion. I'm so glad that you said that brings me to some things that I feel like I say to patients or well, I do say to patients um, in the emergency department. Of course, we have to deliver bad news, not infrequently in our job. And more specifically with cancer diagnoses, I have a really distinct discussion with people. If it's a new diagnosis, if I'm bringing them in the hospital that, you know, as doctors, we are trained to do all of the things. We're always going to try to figure out some new way, shape, form, or fashion to try to attempt to fix something. But sometimes we forget, like you said, sometimes care is, is futile and we're just prolonging things. So sometimes mm. patients just need to just feel empowered to say no and to say that this is not what I want. And so I, I've told a multitude of patients, if at any point this is too much, you're tired, you don't want to do this, it is okay to say no and let's do something different. We can keep you comfortable. We can make you happy or not make you happy, excuse me. We can keep you comfortable, work with your anxiety making sure that you have all the support around you. But sometimes we're just doing things to, to do them because that's what we're trained to do is to try to fix a problem any way, shape, form, or fashion. And we, as I think in, in America, just feel like if we just continue to do, mm. then the problem will be resolved. I really love that it seems like in Australia and in New Zealand that they have a lot more opportunity to talk about the uncomfortable things like death and the end of life and what are we really doing? And then also listening to what the patient truly wants and guiding the care based on the patient preference. I love that. I think that's that was my experience certainly at the time was having more conversations around death and dying and end of life care. I just I came from right out of residency. You're just trained to do all the things you're supposed to do everything. And that's the, probably the best thing you can do. I think it was more of a posture from their standpoint of like, oh, hang on a sec. Let's think about this more holistically. Should we be doing this for this patient? Is this futile or not? And, and can we advise and involve family members and say, look, this is not going to help your family member live uh, or, or live any more of a, a richer, fulfilling life. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rough journey and, and it's maybe not the best thing that they would want. Yeah. Um, so I think that just that posture of, Hey, hang on a sec, let's slow down a bit and just think about the big picture of, of if someone is in the end stage of a disease process, um, are we doing the right thing for the patient? <clears throat> um, so that's the, that's one lesson I learned. And I think those conversations, I, I hadn't really gotten probably enough training on how to have those difficult conversations at times. I remember another story I was with, I was working. So after working in Australia, New Zealand, which is an experience I never will regret, I, it was a fantastic experience just to live in a different culture, to expand and challenge yourself, to adjust your practice to a different culture. 
different mindset about work and work-life balance, which was very refreshing in a lot of ways too. And then just a ability to see another part of the world and travel and adventure. But after I did that, I went to a community practice in, in Minneapolis and the same discussion too. So I, I don't know if I really learned all the things I need to learn about in life care, because I had another, the same discussion with an internist. I saw a patient and the family said, we, I said, do you want everything done for them? And of course they said, yes, because it's not, you're not phrasing the question correctly. Who was going to say no to, oh, do you want us to do anything for your family? Of course we do, but it's not, that's not the right question, right? The right question is what are their goals of care? And then let me make a recommendation based on under my understanding of what you think their goals of care and what they want it probably at the end of their life to look like. And so that's not necessarily, do you want all the things done? It's, this is what my goal is. And this is how we get you there. And the internist said, I, I, again, I didn't learn the lesson the first time I did all the things. And then the internist said, Hey, look, you're doing me a disservice here. Cause essentially she's saying you should have this conversation. And that's something that I still am learning about and learning how to do better. <clears throat> It's hard, I think, just because we don't really, I think we sometimes think that conversation should happen with the intensivist once the picture is more clear or the hospitalist once all of the methods have been exhausted. But I think we can have the conversation too. We're perfectly trained to have a conversation and we're situated. And sometimes I don't think families are ready to have that conversation. But if we, as long as I think we're respectful and phrase our questions the right way, then I think it still can still be very fruitful. Sometimes families are very ready <laughs> to have that conversation and they know. And so then that really helps, I think, downstream for us to give the patients the best uh, end of life care and make sure we're respecting what they want. So that's one of the lessons I learned amongst many lessons from Australia and New Zealand. You said also something about how the New Zealanders and the Australians look at work-life balance a little differently mm -hmm. here in the U.S. Can you share more about that? I think that they have a healthier approach to work, especially in my time in New Zealand. I like New Zealand so much that I went back a second time. This time after that first time, it didn't take the first time. So I went back a second time and then spent about a year living and working in uh, the New Zealand healthcare system. And I do remember one of the uh, one of the American locum tenens radiologists said that he still had this big stack of x-rays to read. And they're like, that's what tomorrow is for. Like it can wait. <laughs> and that's, I think that they rely on the clinician who orders x-ray to do the, the final reads, to do their own reads and make clinical decisions. That, but they're just their approach towards what is, what's the importance of work life? What's someone, what are you living for? Are you living to work or are you working to live, so to speak? And so they just have a very different view, especially where I was living. I was living in a more rural area, but you know, stores are closed on Sundays sometimes because that Sundays are for spending time with your family. So you had to plan around that. It was, it was adjustment. Restaurants closed between lunch and dinner because the, the service people needed to have a break. Okay, you had to adjust them. And so I, I don't think, I, I see that as more and more, I think that we can work ourselves to death. And as healthcare systems evolve, obviously we have more and more asked of us that it, it's on us, I think, to, to make sure we have the right balance. Um, I love the analogy that someone told me that is that yeah, work is like a goldfish. It will grow to whatever bowl we allow it to be put into. So it will grow and fit into whatever bowl we put into it. We have to choose what's the right bowl for our life. Hmm. I like that. That's really good. And so I guess that makes a lot of sense now that you live in Colorado, because I just feel like people in Colorado have the work-life balance. They just 
y'all are zen and everyone's happy because you're skiing and having a good time. <laughs> Is that what kind of brought you to Colorado or how did you go from, you said New Zealand and Australia, then you were in Minnesota and then did you go to Colorado? After uh, spending some time in Minneapolis in a community practice, that's when I went back to New Zealand for another year. Um, and um, I, I, I really loved my time there. I love my colleagues. I love the work we were doing. It really felt like it was getting back to that, the purpose and meaning of work in some ways. Uh, I don't know what it was. There's lots of things that were different about it, but it, it was probably a very favorable work-life balance. Plus just feeling like you had, because it was, it was more of a role place, I see some of the benefits there too, where, you know, if you, um, if you helped a patient that you would very likely see that same patient on the beach or in the shops, and they might stop by and say, thank you. So it's the benefits of working in a more rural area where there's a smaller community of people and seeing some of the direct benefits of, of providing care within that community. Plus there's New Zealand is a great place to live. <laughs> <laughs> it has a fantastic lifestyle overall. But I, I did come back just mainly because we wanted to uh, start a family and we felt more comfortable being closer to our families just because unfortunately the downside of Australia New Zealand is you are probably as far away from the United States as you can get in the world. We wanted to be closer to family. So we moved back to Kansas City where my wife's from. And that's where my kids were born. And I went and worked for another community practice job and working for a different groups, this time working for a Catholic healthcare system, uh, which was a different approach, but nice in some ways too, challenging in other ways. That's when I started to, to butt up against some of the issues that I think AM is most passionate about. One is losing your contract, not because it's your group is doing a bad job, but because you, the hospitalists are almost always subsidized. Yeah. So one of our shops was uh, was approached by a contract management group, and they said, do you like your emergency medicine group? No, we're fine with that. Um, they said, do you like your hospitalist group? And they said, no. They said, what if we told you we could take over both contracts and provide more efficiency, more cost savings, which essentially means we're going to fire all the doctors, and the same doctor who's working in the emergency department is going to be the admitting physician for the patient on the floor, which is going to be managed by an APP, not a physician. And that's your cost savings and efficiency. But of course, my concern is the quality of care that's being provided. The training is different. And as we all know, working with APPs and a uh, physician-led team is the goal. But I don't know how you can be a good emergency doctor plus be the admitting physician with an APP on the floor and expect to have the same level of care because um, patients, their conditions evolve. And they, I think they need the, the expertise of a doctor. Yeah, so that was the first experiment with kind of um, watching that model take over. So even though I thought we were doing a, as good of a job as we could, it, we lost that contract, not because of our performance, but because of economics and the political factors that, that govern healthcare all too much, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we, I think that uncertainty is the opposite of stability. <laughs> so when you start to see contracts fall, People start to make decisions about where what where is a sustainable place to work and live, hmm. and so our democratic group essentially uh, fell apart, just because there's all this uncertainty around this contract and other contracts, and is it better to work um, in a more sustainable situation? Is the healthcare system, hospital system, going to be sustainable because of the the mission to serve the underserved and the hospital 
a lot of hospitals are going out of business because of the strain financially. <clears throat> and so the, this Catholic healthcare system was no different. And so that created enough st instability that you start looking for where can I sustainably be long-term? It was always a goal, a dream of mine to live in Colorado. And that's when I started looking into opportunities and finding uh, the, the group I work for now in Colorado, which is still an independent group, which is a really, it's a privilege to be part of an independent group that controls its own destiny for the most part. Oh. And uh, the nice thing about this group is it really, in the place where it has thrived and grown and being part of that growth is, is a positive thing. So at this point, when these things are happening and you're seeing the, the chaos that CMGs bring to hospitals, are you already a member of AEM or where were you as far as your awareness of AEM is concerned? So one of my mentors and professors was Dr. Gary Gaddis, <clears throat> and uh, he really thought it was important. He really saw the importance of the mission, plus our chair at the time saw the importance of AEM as being the place for the pit doctor, the working doctor. And uh, so we had an option to be a member of, of ASEP. And almost everyone was also a member of AEM. Um, so I think one of the first conferences I went to was uh, some of the AEM Scientific Assembly conferences. And that's the organization I chose to get my membership with over the years. I remember in Minneapolis, that group also had a similar situation where contract management came in to take over one of the contracts. The quality of care suffered significantly. AEM was the only organization that actually stood up for that group, multi-hospital group, with resources, and eventually they got that contract back. <clears throat> so that was, I remember very clearly my my medical director at the time said, uh, I used to be a member of the other organization, but why am I throwing all that money away for them, for them just for some more initials? So he's like, this the AM is the only organization that stood up for us and fought for us. And so that really stuck with me. And then so that's why I continue to keep my membership in AM over the years and through the changes and turmoil that happened in Kansas City. So yeah. So what all have you done in the academy? Clearly you're on the board now. You've been on the board for a little while and I know you've been active in the wellness um, space, but what else do you do around the academy that maybe other people don't know or what have you done in the past in the academy? You know what I love about most about uh, the academy is you really have the, there's lots of opportunities. There's opportunities to, I think, provide extra fulfillment to your career that you may not get at your home institution. So I started out doing the oral board review course. That was my first step. And I really enjoyed uh, working with residents and being part of the faculty for the oral board review course. And I found that to be, to be very a good gateway to getting more involved. And then I was on the social media committee with Dr. Lois Swisher, and that was also an interesting time wow. to look at very early in social media too. So it was a very limited social media, less social media than we have now. Awesome. Interesting. Lois's name has come up, I think, three times today in different conversations. Somebody made the joke that AEM is basically Lois Swisher's <laughs> Rolodex because we are all connected to her in so many different ways shape, forms, and fashion. So I just wanted to shout yeah. her out. Because I love Lois. I think she she exemplifies a lot of what AEM can do. And she exemplifies what a highly motivated member can do to push the Academy to achieve some of the things that it's achieved and how yeah. we're all interconnected. <laughs> so maybe oh. instead of Kevin Bacon, we have Lois Swisher. Like, how are you connected to Lois Swisher? <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, so I was on social media with Lois Swisher. And then a friend of mine, Dr. Jonathan Jones, was elected to the board of directors. <clears throat> and he asked me, he said, um, hey, Rob, do you want to be involved? I'm going to join the board of directors. And do you want to be involved in something else? And he suggested this one committee. And I said, you know what? I think I'm more interested in mid-career burnout. Because certainly I was feeling mid-career burnout. I said, I, this is, I, I felt like I identified something that I was seeing and feeling, but didn't have a name for it yet. And it wasn't well established that this is one of the greatest, one of the significant challenges that emergency medicine physicians faced. Because in the past, it was always, are you board certified or not? Do you have enough training? All those types of things. But I think seeing some of the operational challenges and being part of trying to deliver care in op an operationally challenged environment really was driving burnout for me. And not only was I seeing that, but when I would look, when I go to work and look around, it seemed like a lot of the people that I worked with were burnt out. Mm -hmm. And and I looked at them and some of them were at the like the end of their careers. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be me where I'm at the end of my career and I'm so burnt out that I should just retire. It's just time to go, time to be done. And so the more I wanted to learn about it, the more I wanted to, to frame in the sense that what can we do about it? What can we really work within our special societies to make a difference? And AAM really gave me the opportunity to be part of some of the early development of an all emergency medicine solutions to burnout, where it was really amazing to be part of all of these organizations because we joined in collaboration with all emergency medicine organizations to uh, look at the issue of burnout kind of a multi-specialty society task force, and then then also with the National Academy of Medicine. So for me, that was uh, for not being involved at all, essentially in um, organized medicine to being part and having a seat at the table yeah. with all these incredible thought leaders, because it was not just uh, wellness committee members, it was presidents of all these organizations, and it was uh, thought leaders, and how are we going to move the needle together? How can we speak with one voice? And I really look very fondly upon those that year and years <laughs> as some of the uh, times that I really felt like we were making a difference. And I was part of something that was really much bigger than myself and had a mission that was, I think, very uh, worthy because uh, ultimately it was about helping our colleagues. And of course, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think the efforts still continue to this day. And some of the stuff that we put in place still continue to this day. Um, so I'm really proud of kind of the work that we did with that. And that's an opportunity that AEM gave me that I wouldn't have had otherwise. <clears throat> I'm curious just to learn a little bit more about how you actually got a name to label what you were going through. I just identify when you said mid-career burnout, I feel, and I've said this before, COVID, I think, drove me to burnout, mainly because mm -hmm. of my schedule. I was already traveling. I had been working in an environment where... I knew the population was likely going to be hit the hardest with COVID because of racial and sociological disparities that are going on in the, in the Mid-South area. And so I had a lot of fear going to work and then my schedule was nuts and all of that. So I found myself depersonalizing things and just being mentally exhausted and just detached from feel like everything else that was going around me, but I didn't know that it was burnout until, I don't know, until very recently, I guess when I started to hear the word burnout more and then look up like what the symptoms were, I'm like, oh shit, that's me. I was burnout. <laughs> so how did you come to the conclusion 
that's what you were experiencing? That's a great question. I think part of it was the lack of professional fulfillment side of things. So just feeling so frustrated with trying to provide the best care at work and delving into that, the close cousin of burnout, which is moral injury. Uh, And then looking at that and saying, this is crazy. Why am I the front man for getting the abuse from patients because of a system that's broken? Um, I've always been an organizational approach to like the drivers of burnout are many, but usually two thirds of burnout is driven by organizational factors that are clearly without your, out of your control. And one third is usually factors that are, that you have potentially some control over. And so for me, it was very poor professional fulfillment, just feeling like, I think I want to quit. I think I want to quit. And, and I've been to different jobs and the challenges are similar <laughs> no matter where you go. There's rarely do you have a, a practice environment that is so different in certain ways that usually the challenge is the same, no matter where you practice emergency medicine. And so that's the same. And then looking, just taking a hard look at you know, where do you want to, what do you want your destination to be with your career? And looking at someone that, wow, that person had 25 year career, same hospital, same practice. And what a shame that they are clearly burnt out. People look at that and say, that person's, they don't say, what's, why are they angry? They say, that person's burnt out. And then understanding, I think, unfortunately, burnout, because a lot of people don't understand what that means. They use it for something that's just a challenge. And then the vice versa, the other term we use for like wellness, they use that as something that's challenging. I don't want to do this because it's not good for my wellness. That may be true in some ways, but it's not really, when we think about professional fulfillment and being, it's not the same thing. Some things are just challenging because they're challenging. <laughs> that's That may not be great for professional fulfillment, but it's different than really truly driving your burnout. Burnout is usually many factors, but especially those external factors, the the very popular term going around right now is moral injury. And I don't disagree with moral injury. I think that sums up well. It resonates a lot of people um, as to what the burnout wellness really is. I think part of it is recognizing that something isn't right and feeling that lack of professional fulfillment and then realizing, man, I'm exhausted and I don't want to go into work today. Mm -hmm. And then, then looking at and saying, I mean, we have that aha moment when you read about something and you can say, that's me. And so that's when I started looking at the lots of the, the like Demerati's job resources, job demands, job resources model for burnout. I'm like, that's me. That's totally me. This is not a thing that is unique to emergency medicine, but man, are we susceptible to it? Because we live in a highly complex environment with extremely high stakes and our resources are very limited in getting thinner and thinner. Yep. It, what's demanded of us continues to increase. Right. Um, so with less and less resources, how can you be an environment with more and more demands? The de- definition of stress is high stakes and very little control. Like we live in that spot, right? <clears throat> and so it, it seems almost, and so I, I reframe things that burnout and is, is an occupational hazard of being a physician, especially an emergency physician, unfortunately. Yeah. And until we come to terms with that, then we should be no surprise that's unfortunately the outcome of the systems that we set in place in the practice environments we find ourselves in, which is a grim picture of what I think the reality can be, but it doesn't have to be. So I am still hopeful just because I, I do believe strongly that, that we are not so disempowered that we don't have control of our own destiny, mm-hmm. that we, there, we can control the ground on our own feet to some degree. 
that fundamentally, if we worked in very strong teams that where we knew everyone, where they cared about each other, where we, that can weather a lot. Look at the military. They, people in the military are in terrible situations, life and death situations, but they weather it because of the strength of the teams that they work in. And that's oftentimes what I think veterans talk about they miss the most is that team of people they work with. Healthcare has a long ways to go, I think, to strengthen our healthcare teams in a way. There's so many challenges to that. There's, we have a bedside nursing crisis. We have, uh, we lost a third of our healthcare workers after COVID. Yeah. A third of people just never came back. Um, and so how can you create, possibly create these highly functioning teams that truly are your work family when everyone is in flux? And, so, and then, but fundamentally, I think that most of us go to work because we want to, we really want to connect with patients and that doesn't change. That's still there. And that, I think that connection with patients like you, I love reading those stories where an emergency physician has saved someone's life and the patient recognizes that it comes back to thank them and they get the pictures of them, like the, to know that what we do makes a difference. That I think fundamentally seek, aligns our purpose and meaning. Like we do the hard work because what we do makes a difference. And then I think I, some of, I appreciate the, all the research around gratitude just because gratitude is, you know, when you're burnt out, you're very disengaged. It's very hard to be grateful <laughs> in that yeah. space. But one of the solutions is to look for ways you can be grateful. And there are always something within your workday that you can be grateful from. I think more recently, I was reminded that um, it's, a it's a privilege to be a physician. I mean, and I don't stand here because I'm such an exemplary person. I had people that supported me along the way. I had great mentors in medical school. I I'm here as a physician now because the sacrifices my parents made. <clears throat> and so when I take that into context, it's a privilege to be a physician. We are, are in a privilege. It's a privilege to practice medicine. And if when I go to work with that mindset, it helps me to really realize that it's a privilege to be in medicine. Every opportunity to connect with patients is an opportunity to help patients. When I do make that strong connection, I try to hold on to it as much as I can. And then I can control the ground under my feet. So I can do things like job crafting. Part of why I'm involved in the academy is because that's very life-giving for me. I think my team of people that I consider my friends and that are part of helping me weather the storm includes the people I've met through the American Academy. <clears throat> that's the, those are connections that I would have made otherwise, but I get to choose that, right? So part of my time I, that I give to the academy and service is because that helps me. <laughs> Selfishly, that helps me and helps me to feel more fulfilled in my career. It gives me opportunities to be part of things that I think make a difference, like being part of that all emergency medicine task force slash committee of, uh, to address burnout. That I think is very life-giving for me. Now, opposite, I think, of burnout is all that disengagement, all the, the fatigue, all that low sense, all the, the negative, the cynicism. But the way out, the opposite of burnout is engagement. So if we follow that, which we are significantly engaged in, maybe that's the way out of burnout. So that can be things that you job craft from, that can be more involvement with the academy, that could be some part of your practice. I do emergency medicine, but I also practice some hyperbarics. I also practice some cardiac rehab. It's a very small part of what I practice, but I do it because it gives me more, I, I go to those shifts and it's something different. 
And I get a lot of satisfaction from talking to patients in the context. I lead our educational programs <clears throat> for our group and encompasses uh, our relationship with the University of Colorado. And that definitely gives me life. I love working with medical students and the mentorship and relationships I've been able to, to um, be part of their lives. And it's very satisfying for me to see some of the uh, students that I got to be part of their lives, got to be part of their core clinical year. And now they're emergency physicians. And now I get to go visit them. And that, that is extremely satisfying to me to know that I got to be part of the, their development and their growth and becoming a physician. So those are things that drive me. And yeah, but that's the other things we get, to, we get to choose those things too. We get to job craft our own professional fulfillment. We're not powerless in this regard. We may not be able to choose our ability to use the EHR or not use the HR, but we also get to choose um, our mindset about things, which I think is really important. <clears throat> wow, you said a lot. I, I was going to ask you what keeps you in the academy, but you answered that so beautifully. It, it's a selfish thing, and I'm glad that you said that too, you are giving to the academy just as much as the academy is giving back to you. And that's why you continue to serve. Where do you see yourself going next in the academy? You've been on the board for how long? I don't remember how long. No, not that long. <laughs> I'm in my third year. So I mm -hmm. think the first year is just figuring out how to be on the board and how to serve in that capacity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I really love the academy and want to continue to serve as long as I'm able to. <clears throat> I don't know what that looks like. I think the nice thing about the Academy is there's so many opportunities. I love seeing how some of our members start out really strong and are, take a leadership role, but sometimes they get busy and have to step back a little bit. But I love seeing our members that are also in different career stages and still also extremely motivated and extremely, my, like my one of my mentors and, and former professors, Dr. Gaddis, he's so involved, even though he's he probably, uh, yeah, he still stays, remains very involved, even though he's more in the, the later career stage. And so that's great to see too. So I think that nice thing for me about the Academy is there's lots of opportunities to be involved and I hope to be involved. Uh, I, I love being on the board and I feel like being part of that and helping to uh, shape the vision of the Academy and continue to remain true to our values. And as we re re-upped or rethought the, the mission, vision, and values, that and updated it for what our, our new challenges are, that's a privilege as well too. And being able to really fully be in a place where I feel like we're helping to guide the academy towards that constant mission, vision, and values is really a great place to be. <clears throat> Rob, this has been a really good conversation. Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we end? No, I think we covered it. I, that was, um, yeah, that was great. You went from, I don't know what you want me to share to, I'm like, trust me, I will let you know exactly what I want to know. <laughs> but that was really cool. I, we talked a little bit in DC about your Australia and New Zealand. You mentioned it in one mm -hmm. line off when we were leaving the Texas office. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to know more about that. So I'm glad that we got a chance to talk a little bit more about your experience in Australia and New Zealand. And it's funny, not funny, haha, but just funny, weird, like, probably about a week or two ago, I literally got an email from um, a recruiter saying, hey, practice emergency medicine in New Zealand. I'm like, don't you tempt me. Don't you tempt <laughs> me because I will pack a bag and I will be <laughs> If you are serious about that, we should have more conversations because um, uh, I, I have a few opinions about that. <laughs> okay. 
we will talk about it offline. I'm not sure if I'm 100% going to go, but I think I just deleted the email because I'm like, this is too tempting for me. I said, if it comes back around again, maybe I'll dig more into it, but I still want to know a little bit more about what you've got to say about it. Yeah, no, obviously I'm a fan, but I would also say there, just with everything else, it's, it's good to really look in depth about what that looks like. Like it, it, there, there obviously are incredible pluses, but there's also some challenges yeah. too. And so just understanding and making sure you have the best experience possible from someone who's been there a couple of, I still think one day, maybe I'll go back to New Zealand and practice medicine. It was that good of an experience. I love that. Okay, then well, I will yield you the be- rest of your day back. But again, Rob, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. I learned a ton about you and to have you on the board as a wellness champion, as a fellow community doc that's out there, just making sure that our environments are good for us as physicians so we can take care of our patients in the best possible way. I really appreciate your voice on the board and I really appreciate getting to know you better as a fellow board member. So thank you for everything that you're continuing to do for the Academy. Thank you, likewise. And I think Dr. Jones summed it up right. If we take care of the physician, if we give them a good schedule, if we pay them fairly, they that is what's gonna make us able to take care of the patients the best. We have to look at the physician and the clinicians that are taking care of patients if we were ever to achieve the best possible care for the patients. I mean, it's gotta be both ways. So. Thank you so much for your time and listening to me. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing. All right, we'll talk soon. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website.